welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, today we're going to talk about the video game music that's most nostalgic to us, as well as how we got involved with the chip music community today. That's right. Uh, We had this idea to do a sort of introspective episode uh, so we could share with the listeners how it is we became interested in game music. And this is actually an older episode we were sitting on. Uh, I think way back we were considering this for, what, our 10th episode, I think? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I I remember wanting to do this, but thinking it'd be kind of weird to talk about this stuff without any sort of context. Um, But now that we've got a lot more episodes down, perhaps some listeners might be interested to know a little bit more about us. Or... (laughs) I guess the good news is if you don't care at all, uh, the first chunk of this episode is basically just a playlist <laughs> of video game music. So, uh, and there's not, there's not even a history section, which is great. We just go right to the music. Isn't that great? Absolutely. Uh, so speaking of which, uh, let's get started. So we have this episode broken up into two main chunks. Uh, To start with, we're going to do a sort of journey through nostalgic video game music. Steve and I each picked 10 tracks, and we'll have more tracks available for the bonus content episode. Uh, The sort of idea behind this playlist is we picked music uh, that left an impression on us from games that we played up through middle school. So that was sort of the cutoff. Anything we played in high school or later, uh, we're not going to uh, talk about. Yeah, I I think that that was a good way to look at it. And I think that we had two very different experiences growing up with the kinds of music we were exposed to. Absolutely. Um, So I I think that that's what we really wanted to uh, highlight here. And just talk about some tracks that, like, we remembered as kids as being, like, interesting or, you know, that might have a little story behind them. So I think that was the purpose of this exercise. And for my end, there's, like, a, a notable lack of NES music. Uh, which is kind of funny. Obviously, that's something I'm really, really into. Most of our episodes in the podcast relate to NES and Famicom music. Um, but, you know, I'll explain why that is later on. So, um, And then the second half of this episode, we're going to share how we got into the modern chip music community, um, whether it's, you know, how we started making chip music or just sort of uh, how, how we made the leap from enjoying video game music into sort of doing the deep dive that we uh, that we do today. So. Yeah, it should be fun. Uh, this is actually one of the most fun I've had putting together an episode. Uh, just because it's just kind of like, I don't know, there's just a lot of uh, fun things that I kind of discovered about myself while looking into uh, the tracks I picked here. So uh, I guess I'll get us started here. Um, again, just as a reminder, some of these tracks are going to be a little bit <laughs> earlier. There's no way I could have played this game uh, right when it came out because I would have been really young. But one of the games that I remember in the first game on our list chronologically would be uh Paperboy by Atari for the arcade. Uh, this was released in 1985, uh, and it was composed by Hal Cannon, um, who's also part of the Brad Fuller Hal Cannon duo that did Marble Madness. So, ah, you know, okay. t- top kind of guy. Um, it's interesting because Hal Cannon is. I mean, I look. I tried to find some information about him because he's one of the only names on this list that I'm not super familiar with. But I found that most people are not familiar with him. After like 1989, he kind of disappears. Ah, okay. Uh, I'm not even kidding. Just kind of disappeared. And even his friends don't know where he is. Um, Maybe I'm sure when Brad Fuller passed away, uh, he might have reappeared. But according to video game music preservation, uh, 
there's there's no information on him past 1989 so that's kind of of weird um and it isn't because he wrote this track um i love the bgm from this game i remember playing it uh kind of my grandfather was actually a a famous pro bowler of all things so i spent a lot of my time in the bowling alley uh and when i didn't want to bowl he used to just give me like a handful of quarters and i used to play like the the paltry you know selection of uh arcade games there and one of them was Paperboy. It had the handlebars too, like it had like a bike handlebar so oh, you could wow. steer. Um, and it was like completely quiet in there because everyone was bowling, and the music would just blast because it was on a tracked mode. Even while you're trying to play, it was that loud. And surprisingly, the this actual soundtrack or this actual uh, background music is actually OPM, which we covered the YM two one five one or twenty one fifty one for some of you. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it's actually one of my favorite tracks, uh, you know, of all time. I just think it's like kind of iconic and funky and jazzy so let's take a listen The cowbell and percussion in that track sounded pretty nice. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's just uh, I think the the actual background music is just the uh, the OPM. I'm I think this thing also included a module that let you have uh, voices, like a you know kind of like a just a standard PCM module. But I don't think it was used during the BGM. I could be wrong, but I, so I think that the, the actual cowbell in there is just FM, which is pretty cool. Oh wow. Um, so before off podcast, you know, you had a sort of light bulb go off saying like, oh yeah, arcade music, you know, like it was yeah. when you were making your selections, like you'd forgotten. Um, I actually don't have any arcade selections at all. Uh, oh, wow. yeah. And it's sort of because I think that, you know, I have some fond memories playing arcade games, but I think every time I went to an arcade, it was just like really packed and really noisy. So I can't say that there's like any video game music from an arcade unit that left an impression on me as a kid. Like I can't remember going to the arcade and really rocking out to the music uh, from any arcade oh, wow. game. So um, I listen to it now and being like, Oh, this is like some really great, like Genesis sounding music. Um, but yeah, that that's something I kind of missed out on. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I've got like the, my list is full of like weird Amiga music. So, um, yeah, I totally missed out on that. So I guess that leads you to your selection here, your first one. Absolutely. My first selection is uh, the video game adaptation of The Black Cauldron, um, which is a, a great Disney movie, by the way, as well as my probably my favorite Disney movie. 
Probably because it's full of skeletons and stuff. And you know I like creepy stuff. So <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. just pretty much how that goes. And uh, so the game doesn't have any BGM. Um, typical of a lot of older Amiga music. But this is really er- early Amiga. This is like 90... I believe it's 1986, possibly. This might even be before the mod format was invented. Uh, I'd have to double check on that. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, because the, the music is just really simplistic. It, it's these really simple tones and uh we'll we'll give it a listen And so that track actually opens up with like a loose rearrangement of the actual Horned King's uh, theme from the Disney <laughs> uh, Black Cauldron movie. So for a brief comparison, let's give that a listen. Uh, so again, I mean, just the Amiga music is very simple. It's not particularly great music. I don't listen to it now thinking like, oh, yeah, this is an awesome chiptune. Um, <laughs> but it's just one of those really, you know, I was trying to think of like the earliest earworms I can remember from gaming. Um, and that's that's right at the top of my list. Yeah, it's actually interesting because uh, well, I grew up in a household. We had an Apple II. Uh, I think it was an Apple IIe, actually. And I had some kind of version of the Black Cauldron. It's kind of a, a point-and-click adventure, I guess. Was that was that the same as the Amiga version? Yeah, yeah, it's the same game. Oh, cool. Um, I absolutely love that game. It came with, like, a little uh, map, uh, mm-hmm. and it had that sort of design where, like, you're in a screen and like, when you're in the overworld, and if you, like, walk out the, the left side of the screen, you'll mm-hmm. wind up in a new area if you walk out the right side. But you can also walk out the top and the bottom of the, of the screen as well. Um you know, it's those really early adventure games, like the the first Space Quest and stuff like that, where your character, like your limbs and stuff like that, are like one pixel wide or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the graphics are super simple, but it, there was like this world you could sort of explore and get lost in, and uh, again, you know, uh, kind of creepy at times. So uh, that's why I loved it, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my second pick on this list here, uh, it's the next thing we have chronologically, is a game called Bubble Ghost. Um, this is kind of a game with, uh, sort of an interesting background that I would like to know more about because I don't know how, how it was made. Um, a lot of listeners might be familiar with the Game Boy version of, uh, Bubble Ghost, which it's, it's the same basic game. It's the same intellectual property, but I don't think it was made by any of the same people at all. Um, because when you look at the original Bubble Ghost, it's like a European computer game. Uh, but on the Game Boy, it's like a Japanese made by Japanese developers. Um, weird. Yeah, so there's like there's no relationship between who made them as far as I know. Um, so that means I guess like someone in Japan uh, liked the game, liked the game concept. Um, so uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. The Game Boy version has music um, by the uh, Kirby's Adventure composer. What's his name again? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, Juni Shikawa in this situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, but this original version uh, has music by someone named and sorry, I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation uh like stephane pick um yeah that's that would be my guess too <laughs> uh, yeah I'm, I'm very sorry about that uh this is has a bit of an interesting story too uh 
I remember downloading the mod file for this way back, and I can't find the same mod file anymore for whatever reason. I swear, oh, I, I swear, I got it off of. There's this amazing Amiga Music archive called Exotica, and there's also like Unexotica, and <laughs> um, the I remember finding a mod file for this game, and the mod file itself claimed that it was one of the first Amiga mod files ever made. Um, so it would be cool. Oh, to, weird. Uh, you know, I don't actually know what the earliest, uh, you know, mod files are. Um, but, but the one file that I found claimed that it was because the mod files can have like comment sections in them. And that, that's what it said in the comments. I um, think that that, that's like definitely something I know we keep talking about doing an Amiga episode, but that's definitely something we'll find the answer to. There's gotta be that. And I wonder if it really is true. Right. And what I couldn't find the mod for bubble ghost, but I found a mod for a game called bubble plus, which is just like a slightly updated version of the game. And it has that title theme, the same music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the weird part is I know for sure my version of the game was not Bubble Plus. It was just Bubble Ghost. Oh, in addition to like the mod file, you know, being kind of weird or hard to find, the game ROM, like when I play the game in emulation, it doesn't play the music. It doesn't have the introduction sequence. So it's like, I don't oh, know if someone wow. ripped. Yeah, I don't know if someone ripped a different version of the game or what, but I know for sure I have the audio here actually recorded from hardware a bunch of years back. Um, so I know for sure I had this as Bubble Ghost, not Bubble Plus, and it did play this uh, theme music here. The, the ridiculous like baseline everything in it i love everything about yeah, it. yeah it's very it's very amiga <laughs> <laughs> um so i think you have the next selection in the list here so i guess the next thing on our list and i guess my next choice would be uh the original mechwire for dos 
Um, so there was a bunch of different games that used the that Mech Warrior BattleTech uh, rights. I mean, right now, you know, uh, the tragic story of you know BattleTech is that it's kind of held up in copyright hell, and a copyright troll won't, won't let anyone use any of the content or any derivatives of the content. Oh, wow. that's why there hasn't been a new one in forever. Um, and so it's just been really difficult. And I think that like it's being copyright trolled right now. It was back in the news. Um, so <laughs> wow. here we go again. Um, but anyway, the original Mech Warrior, uh, I did not actually own this game. So one of the things that uh, we're going to find on this list is like a lot of uh, consoles and stuff that I played when I was a kid were not actually like something I had access to. Um, so yeah, uh, often I would go to my friend's house and I, you know, uh, it was weird because where I grew up, there was like really no one. Uh, I mean, it wasn't in the middle of nowhere, but it was like dude, there was no kids in the neighborhood. And then finally a kid moved into the neighborhood and he happened to be a gamer. And it was pretty cool. So we used to hang out all the time in like middle school and grade school. Uh, and it was great because his he had in his room a 386 and his dad had uh, a working, you know, for his work, a 586, which could run like anything like a CD-ROM drive in like 1991 uh, kind of run anything. So, we, you know, we between the two, we could play anything. Uh, Mech Warrior was a game that we used to play on his 386 because on the 586 it would run way too fast, which is ah, kind of okay. funny because <laughs> um, it was built like that. You know what I mean? It's built to be uh, played at a certain uh, megahertz, I believe. Um, so <clears throat> it was actually interesting because I, I was listening to this and there's a couple different versions. There's like a really bad like Roland sound uh, version of it. Uh, and it must be that uh, my friend had the ad lib card. So my friend, I actually, this, one of my favorite songs from being a kid actually was FM. And it's funny, the two tracks I picked are both FM so far. Um, so uh, yeah, let's take a listen to the intro to this. Uh, it's a track that I kind of remember. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's kind of something that I find myself humming and not remembering what it is and being like, oh, it's Mech Warrior. Uh, I played so much of this game. So let's take a listen. That's a cool selection. Um, I like that we have some ad lib audio in here um, because that's not something that I I can contribute here. Um, I mean, of course, I do remember hearing that that sort of sound. Like the ad lib sound is such a particular sound set, uh, such a unique sound to it. And um, I remember hearing that, of course, like going to play games at friends' houses and stuff. Um, but again, it's not something that I grew up with, so there's there's no music that I can distinctly remember ad lib from my childhood. Yeah, I think that this is like one of, I, I mean, I grew up an entire house with just 
uh, Macintosh computers until like uh, middle school. So a lot of my experience was just listening to Mac and 2GS sound. And so just a completely different sound. Cause like, I mean, there was no Mac FM basically, <laughs> you know, it was mainly uh, soft sense or I think it was called like Apple sound manager, I think was what was used for a lot of it, um, which was kind of like wavetable and sample. I'm not quite sure how it works, um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I remember anytime we played any game on his system, it was FM and I, I, I mean, I had no clue what it was and it was one of my favorite sounds one of the weirdest part about this game and i tried to load it up on dosbox and i listened to it is that anything that sounds wrong in that music the way that the attacks and the notes are kind of like janky is really how it sounded uh and i was trying to remind myself that that's the case but yeah it does you know how it kind of sounds like out of time and wrong yeah, oh yeah absolutely it, it, I mean, even emulated at perfect speed, it sounds out of time and wrong. So I, I don't, I guess it just is. I mean, I remember it being weird and kind of like janky. So it has that, um, like that herky jerky vibe to it. That like, um, what am I thinking of? A boy in his blob on the NES has, which is like, yeah, the, the rhythm just feels off. Yeah, it definitely does. And there's like drums at the beginning that those, the, the drums that kind of hit the, the, the kind of uh, FM kicks they're like not right in time, but I can, it adds to the charm, I guess. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next thing I have on my list is Rambo three. Uh, there were a lot of different Rambo threes, I think uh, on different systems. I think a lot of them were like totally different games. I'm not totally sure. Um, mm-hmm. The one I had played kind of like a, an old metal gear game where it's like a top down stealth. Like don't let, don't walk into the enemy's line of sight type of thing. Otherwise it'll set off an alarm. And the game had the creepiest visual. I'll link to it in the comments. Like, your health bar was a picture of Rambo's face. So it's, like, pixel art of, like, you know, kind of like Stallone as Rambo or whatever. Mm -hmm. And each vertical, like, notch in that face portrait was, like, each pixel was, like, part of your health bar. And so each time you lost a little bit of health, it would, like, erase one of those lines and replace your face with a skeleton face. Oh, great. <laughs> so like there was a huge incentive to not take damage uh, because it like that skeleton face scared the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> but I loved it at the same time. It's like, I, I would want to play this game like endlessly, uh, even though like, it, you know, retrospect, it's kind of a pretty bad game. Uh, the first couple levels I thought were pretty cool, but um, but this music, the game's by ocean and the music is by Jonathan Dunn. And uh, so even though I didn't grow up with the Commodore 64, uh, listening to this example, you you can kind of hear like the marriage between the Amiga and the C64, where some composers were sampling that arpeggiated sound. Um, so even though Amiga is sample-based music, you would get some of that chiptune vibe uh, into Amiga music. So uh, here's the like the BGM from Rambo 3. Thank you. 
ridiculous song. I love it, though. No, that's awesome. So next chronologically on our list here is another selection of mine. It's The Secret of Monkey Island. Um, I just I can't say enough good things about the theme song to this game. Uh, once again, this is another Amiga selection, so I'm playing the Amiga version of this theme. Um, something I thought was kind of interesting on the credits for Lemon Amiga is it mentions Chris Hulesbeck. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, so uh, I would have to double check that. I don't know if he like ported the Amiga music um, or who the original composer on this track was exactly. So... Uh, Nonetheless, here is the theme to The Secret of Monkey Island. For me, it's all about the those like steel drum kind of like trilled sounds on there. Like that's just absolutely fantastic to me, and I, it the the sort of percussive and uh, just sort of upbeat vibe to it is is amazing. Yeah, no, it, it, it's crazy because like you know that's just thinking about the Amiga in general, and like only finding out about the Amiga's sound later. You know, after only playing Super Nintendo and you know uh, or and Sega CD with PCM and etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just so weird to know that that kind of music was being made kind of in parallel yeah. with like mm-hmm. you know the 2A03 and things that we were just kind of familiar with um or like I guess I was just familiar with so I I mean I never experienced that when I was younger like at all like I'm just looking at here the first PCM thing that I even put on here is I mean uh, let's see I guess 1993 Okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I've never really experienced it at all. Like, uh, I guess growing up, so it's kind of an interesting uh, way that you kind of turn to Nintendo and like looking at Wavetable, and you know, just uh, knowing that, that you didn't really have that growing up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll link to in the comments as well. There's a great YouTube video that like has the theme uh, being played back like on a bunch of different sound cards. Of course, because, you know, that game was ported uh, endlessly uh, across computers. So there's like a lot of different versions of that theme song and like they're all pretty great. So, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think you had the uh, next pick on our list here. Yeah. So actually, this is just, you know, uh, some of the things I picked on here are not like necessarily not known, but I think that they're worth mentioning because they have like significance to me. So 
I guess <clears throat> the next one on my list would be Dr. Mario uh, for NES, uh, which was released in 1990. I don't think it was in my house until like 91 or something like that. Uh, I remember that this was the very first game in my entire house that was not bought by me. Or ah, not bought okay. for me. This, this is the game that me and my, my mom and my dad bought to play. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it was it was like a thing where like we I, they'd send me to bed and they would sit there and play Dr. Mario and swear at each other. Um, for like, <laughs> like all night and like, you know, I, I can ask my mom this story over and over again and she denies it. So, oh, we didn't do that. Blah, 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 blah. They absolutely did. I mean, multiple times I wouldn't be making up this story that, about that. And so one thing that I remember is my mom like was playing the single player and she's getting all upset with it and she was fairly good at the game. And I remember the first time she beat the game. Like actually beat it on the hard, hard, you know, hardest difficulty getting to the end and actually beating it. And like, it's one of those things where like, I wasn't supposed to be awake, but I could hear everything because they were being so loud. Um, and like, I have an early childhood memory of here because I played the game and I was never good at it of hearing the ending to the game from another room and being like, what track is that? I've never heard that before. Oh, wow. Like, you know, and my mom cheering and like, I realized that she'd beaten the game. Um, so I get that I picked that track, which would be the true ending to Dr. Mario for uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. That's like a pretty great track to have uh, Eve eavesdropped on. Yeah, it's just it's just funny because like I like I said I played the game a million times and never heard that track and like me being very exacting and and remembering everything as a little kid and being quite obnoxious about it was like what game were they playing? They must have bought another game. Blah 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 blah. And it turned out that they beat Doctor Mario. So. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of a game uh, that you know has been ported to a million different consoles, I- I'm looking at the the next game on your list here. Yes, Lemmings. Yep. Uh, so this is we're entering 1991 here, um, and there's a certain track in this game that always stood out to me because it sounded different than the rest of the soundtrack. Oh, I mean there were two tracks that did. There was Menacing, uh, which is like, had a very heavy rocking sound, and then there's mm-hmm. also this track. And it turns out the reason that they sound different is because both of these songs come from different Amiga games originally. So they're covers. So Menacing is from a game called Menacing. Uh, this one is a cover of the Shadow of the Beast introduction, which it's, it's a classic Amiga game, but I never owned it. So oh, interesting. And it, that game, Shadow of the Beast, has like one of the best Amiga soundtracks. Um, mm-hmm. But sadly, I can't really legitimately include anything from it in my, uh, you know, in this nostalgic picks here. Um, but I did love this Lemming song, and 
I don't remember when or where it is I heard the Shadow of the Beast music. It was probably much later when I was in high school, maybe even a bit later. Um, but when I finally heard it, I was like, oh, man, like this is where that awesome Lemming song comes from. Um, so here is, uh, you know, this cover of the Shadow of the Beast music uh, as I first heard it. Yeah, I think I was just attracted to the atmosphere of that track. And again, as you know, most of my picks have been like kind of spooky stuff so far. And that's just for some reason, I can't explain why, but that's the stuff that stood out to me. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. I've always wondered about uh, Shadow of the Beast 2 when I was a kid. I had Lemmings for Super Nintendo. Uh, and I always remember, I think, what, the levels of Beast of a Level, right? Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah. And, and I, I just remember getting to that and being like, why is this? so different like this is so weird because everything's like she'll be coming around the mountain yeah and then exactly. we have this like dark and brooding thing you know it's just like what <laughs> yeah it, it's great music the, so the original song is by david whittaker um mm-hmm. but he, you know he didn't work on the actual lemmings soundtrack so it was ported by someone else <laughs> yeah that would make sense uh and so you have another uh nes game here coming up uh, also 1991 release yeah, so like you know, completely different uh, atmosphere here. Uh, I remember <clears throat> getting uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three, the Manhattan Project, which I've talked about a million times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. No, uh, it's cool. For yeah. <laughs> Did I mention I like this soundtrack? Um, I remember getting it. Uh, my grandmother bought it for me. I think I got it either for my birthday or Christmas, which are kind of close together. But I just remember being like completely blown away by the music uh, as a kid. It was something that like I obsessively like thought about like would write would try to play on pianos like i just really thought it was interesting and i thought like i never understood how as a kid what how konami was able to fit all of that sound into just the nintendo when i played like you know stupid other games that like you know from 19 uh, like 86 that had like no sound not really understanding what that like you know things kind of progression or but i just remember being like blown away by it like i already had a super nintendo by then and i thought the music was better on the nes and the super nintendo stuff because it was just crazy and like you know for lack of a better term balls to the wall 
Um, so I picked one of the most boss of the walls track. Obviously, I picked the boss theme from uh, Teenage Mutant Turtles Three: uh, The Manhattan Project. crazy this sounds like there's like eight or nine instruments there and there's not i just remember being a kid being like really confused like you know when you're like you're, you're trying to figure out the answer to a question and you, you just really focus on it like you're listening to it and you're you're wondering why it sounds so good and you have really no clue and it's like to really hear them cram all that sound in there is just freaking unbelievable and even today it just blows me away every time i listen to it chills man <laughs> um so for the next uh selection this is a game from 1992 uh, are you familiar with the terrible, terrible NES game Conan the Bar- Barbarian? That sounds... I, I've never played it, actually. I, uh, let me back up for a second. Yeah, I've never played it. It's it's really bad. Um, <laughs> and it, it pains me to see it because it's a port of another game, which mm-hmm. I guess by modern standards, the, the original, what it's based on, is not that great either. Um, mm-hmm. But But it's not... I would say they're not half as bad as the NES game, uh, a game that was originally called Myth. So it doesn't mm-hmm. involve Conan at all. They just sort of attach. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they just attach <laughs> that to the NES game. So I believe it was originally a C sixty four game, uh, and that has some fantastic music in it as well. But I, of course, had the Amiga version, completely different theme song. <laughs> um, the C sixty four version is like this awesome draw and tell music. Um, but the Amiga music is this like more creepy atmospheric kind of thing. And um, th- it's actually cool. There's an upload on YouTube by the original composer. He has his, oh, ri- that's cool. he has his original version of the track, which differs slightly from the in-game version. Actually. Um, I think it's like 90% the same, but th- there are some differences. Um, so I'll link to that in the comments, but I'll play the, uh, the Amiga version as I had it here. Uh, this is myth history in the making.
Uh, so quick story about this game. I, you know, in reading about it online, it seems like there's a lot of purists who love the C64 version the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of in a similar situation to like how they changed the game for Conan, uh, they did a change with the protagonist again between that and the Amiga version. So in the C64 version, you're like some like teenager who gets like warped back in time to the different like mythological <laughs> like occurrences. Of course. But in the Amiga version, you're like a barbarian with an axe and the cover art for the box of the amiga version is so cool it is so cool it's like that weird old art style of like fantasy art that's really really detailed and Mm -hmm. like you know like it it's the type of box art where there's there's nothing on the nes or or super nintendo that has cover art that looks like this it's really detailed um there's really gnarly looking skeletons once once again um a hallmark for you know something that i love skeletons um and uh, it, it's just, it has this really cool, creepy style. The game came with a comic book, which you actually needed to, like, use. It had, like, some puzzles in it, solutions that helped you, like, figure out how to beat bosses in the game. Um, you could, like, decapitate these dwarves in the game. Like, there's all kind of gnarly stuff in it. And I, f- I feel like looking at the C64 version, where you're, like, a teenager, it just, like, it loses some of that cool um so i i stand by you know of course, obviously i'm just saying that because this is it's nostalgic to me but the amiga version of myth seems by far the coolest to me so yeah that makes sense i i, I can imagine decapitating dwarves to be very satisfying when you're younger <laughs> oh it was great like you had to hold the joystick like at a certain angle to like swipe them at the level of their <laughs> of their neck <laughs> So in a way, it feels, it feels kind of like playing Dark Souls today where, like, you know, taking down an enemy a certain way like, involves, like, a certain uh, mechanical input to, to, to kind of get things just right the way you want to do it. And it was sort of very satisfying because like, sometimes you'd screw it up and be like, oh, no, I just kind of, like, axed him in the chest and he died and I didn't get to knock his head off. And then, like, once you get it right, it's just like, oh, man, it's so great. <laughs> it's so funny that you think about it, though, like a lot of what we valued as kids in video games was the violence. Like, oh, absolutely. oh man, I can kill someone that way. That's so cool. I mean, that's all Mortal Kombat was basically. Um, but I mean, at the same time, like I, I remember like just like playing certain games and like that little detail, like, you know, Contra, you hit someone and it just turns into a little puff of like red that flashes on the screen right. or something. But for there to be detail like Splatterhouse or like some of these games that were in Genesis where like everything just splatters all over the place. It's just like so glorious and like dripping and you know, like kind of nice uh, compared to that like uh, the lack of detail, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I did strongly agree, of course. So, talk, <laughs> putting the kids' kid gloves on now and talking <laughs> about battle, instead of, you know, dripping, there's no dripping blood in Super Mario Kart, which is my next choice here, <laughs> uh, which, continuing in 1992 here, um, <sighs> Super Mario Kart was a weird game in my household. It was often fought over. Um, basically... There was a point where almost everyone in my household was like at equal strength in terms of how good they were at this game. We used to play a lot of battle mode, and it was one of the only games my dad would play because battle mode, you can almost kill yourself, you know, mm-hmm. if you're like a yeah. kid driving into the wall. So he had like a realistic chance of winning, um, you know, and we used to just play this all the time. And, you, and we, me and my, uh, brother and him would like drive my mom crazy because we'd be playing this game and like, you know, we only had one TV growing up, which really caused a lot of issues. Um, you know, if people are playing video games, people can't watch TV. So we used to monopolize the TV and monopolize was the exact word everyone would say in my household, (laughs) monopolize the TV. Oh, he's monopolizing the TV. Uh, You know, uh, it's it's just something that we would say. 
Um, but I always remember, like, my dad, uh, you know, was very good at this game, and then I got a lot better than him. Like, I must have, like, reached a milestone in my own, like, you know, coordination and growth, and I just would, like, stop them. They had to make a rule that if you won twice, you had to sit three games. So I'd, like, throw up, throw a couple matches to make people happy so I wouldn't have to sit. <laughs> um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but what we used to do is we used to play battle mode all the time. So here's the battle mode theme. It's kind of wonky and perfect. mentioned like fighting over uh the tv and stuff i find that that's a very different experience from how i played games as a kid uh because we actually had two amigos we had it in what Amiga. yeah we had how lucky are you <laughs> so we had oh, man. yeah yeah my dad my dad was all about the amiga he used to go to like um uh what was it called like fairfield county amiga users group like he used to oh, go wow. to like like these sort of like shareware like swap meets and stuff like that and people would oh like, that's so cool yeah um, so he had an Amiga 500 and an Amiga 2000. And so, uh, yeah, I know the 2000, I think they called it that because I think it was $2,000 when it was new. Yeah. Um, so pretty much anytime I wanted to play a game, um, the only competition would ever be like if my brothers wanted to play as well, but I was mm-hmm. kind of like the biggest game nerd of all of us. So I don't feel like that happened that much. If it was kind of like, Oh, you know, my brother wants to play the Amiga, I, I could, you know, I don't remember really fighting over it because it's like, oh, I could just let them play for a while because I'm going to be playing it for hours later. And there's no fighting over the TV because it has its own monitor. Um, so, like, really the only thing that happened was, like, my parents would have to put limitations, you know, and being like, you've played you've played too much. Like, that's the, the only thing that would keep me away from the computer is uh, just them having to stop me because I'd be on it all day long uh, if I had my way, so... Yeah, I actually had a very similar experience in which my parents would, I mean, in addition to the TV being an issue, my parents also like put uh, time limits on my playing. It, when I grew up, yeah. I was only allowed to play video games on the weekend, not during uh, the week. Okay. Um, and I think my parents helped me that until high school. Um, they didn't consider playing on a PC to be gaming, so I played a lot of StarCraft. Um, <laughs> you know, like they, they didn't consider that to be gaming. Um, so I just got obsessed with those kind of games, but I mean, when, when it was the weekend, it was like, I'm going to rent a game and no one bothered me until it's Monday morning. Um, you know, (laughs) if if, if possible. I should mention renting games. That's also something I never did growing up. Really? Yeah. Cause I didn't have any consoles and I don't know. There was no point. You're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know that that was a thing, uh, on for computer games. I don't think it was. 
Um, the one place by me eventually had rental PC games that were on CD-ROM. Oh, okay. Um, because like you couldn't really run it without the CD-ROM, so they definitely did that. I'm sure people just burned them, and I think towards the end we were just burning them. I really distinctly remember burning copies of like Doom 2 CD and a couple different other different things from there. Um, they even had a, like they they the place by me was so great they actually had a PC and a Mac rental section. Like, oh, wow, that's nice. how much they were into it. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things I used to do to try to get around those limitations, uh, again, I had my friend down the street who was a gamer, so I'd just be like, oh, we're going to go hang out, and then we would just play games until it was time for me to go home. Um, and that was a, a kind of a way I got around that limitation of when I was uh, to play during the week. Sorry, Mom, if you're listening to this. That's how I basically <laughs> – I, I never was studying studying at Greg's house. We were playing video games. Um, <clears throat> so – Basically, uh, one of the things he got, uh, I guess, at a garage sale was he obtained a, uh, a Sega CD, oh, um, nice. which was kind of awesome. Um, it came with a bunch of games and like all the good games, too. Like I, I, that if he still has all of that, he probably has eight or nine hundred dollars worth of Sega CD games. He had like every good one, like oh, wow. from Lunar the Silver Star to Pop Full Mail to uh, Vey to anything you can think of. Um, so all the good stuff. So we used to play Lunar the Silver Star um, a lot. And like we were not good at it. It was kind of Lunar in general compared to other RPGs is kind of very difficult. Um, and even I think when it was ported here, I know that uh, Eternal Blue was made 25% harder. So I'm sure that working designs had their way with the Silver Star and probably made it harder as well. Um, I just remember one of the really funny things is we used to listen to the battle theme because like we really didn't know what we were doing and we'd like end up dying in battle over and over again. Uh, we could barely play this as like fourth grade, um, and it was pretty funny because like <laughs> the battle theme had like a scratch on it and it was like a, I guess it was kind of a red book audio kind of situation, not red book, but you know it was an audio CD that played it. So like you'd get to the very end of the battle theme because it's like kind of through composed, and it would play the very last part of it and then it would go. <laughs> And then it wouldn't repeat. So it would just be silent battle because the Sega CD would use the uh, Genesis's chip to make the battle noises and it wouldn't um. load anything from the CD. So often it would just freeze at that point. Uh, we got around this a couple different ways, uh, you know, by kind of like fixing the CD or whatever, or trying to fight combats faster than the, <laughs> than the oh, battle theme would wow. go on. But uh, you can, as you can tell, we never beat the game. Um, so I just remember this as being like mind blowing compared to other things that were on any consoles, especially because it's pretty much a straight up recording. So here's the battle theme from Lunar the Silver Star.
would do it like and like break right there <laughs> every time. And like what would happen is normally when you played the combat, that would loop again mm-hmm. and start the song over again, which is, you know, it's kind of clunky, but it's still pretty funny that like it, it would just be complete silence for the rest of the battle. <laughs> oh, wow. That's some pretty great uh, RPG music. I'm not familiar with the Lunar series, so oh, that's... it's it's fantastic. It, it, it's it's uh, you know I really and I I wish that when I was younger I had had the Sega CD and played some of those games. Uh, I you know I would have traded if I had known they were that good. I would have definitely traded my SNES and everything I had for them. So <laughs> my earliest uh, Sega CD memory is a uh, uh, a friend of my brother's had flashback for the oh, Sega yeah, CD. Yeah. <laughs> And that was the first time I'd ever seen that game. Um, you know, I later played it on the Super Nintendo, like much later. Uh, mm-hmm. But Flashback was a game that, you know, I'd never seen like Prince of Persia. So the whole like rotoscoped animation thing was totally new to me. And mm-hmm. it just it absolutely blew my mind and left a strong impression on me. So um, I remember like for years, like I couldn't even remember what the game was called. But I was like, oh, man, there's that one awesome game with like the side scrolling, like the weird platforming <laughs> graphics. And I, it yeah. took me a while to figure out what it was. I was like, oh, it's flashback. And um so that's like that's like the one Sega C D game I can actually remember uh seeing and being like really enthralled with it uh, back when it was new. Yeah. Um so I have the next selection here. This is from a game called Super Frog. This is like a very traditional run and jump sort of platformer. Um it stood out on the Amiga because there weren't a lot of games with great platforming physics on the Amiga. Like, we didn't have any Super Mario Brothers on the system. Like, the one really popular title is, like, the... And I'm going to get, like, butchered by Amiga fans, which is funny, because I'm playing, like, some obscure uh, Amiga stuff here. Um, but there's, like, the Gianna Sisters, or Great Gianna Sisters. Like, I don't even remember... I, I've never actually even played it. Um, yeah, that, that's a Chris Hulsbeck uh, soundtrack, yes. right? Chris Hulsbeck did the work for that. It's, if you the have music a, is great. Have you, it's fantastic. It's unbelievably good. Uh, yeah. Oh, the, the music is fantastic. Yeah. Game Gameplay-wise, game I feel like people ate it up on like the Amiga and C64 or whatever because there was no, nothing as good as Super Mario Brothers. Like People settled for the <laughs> worst mechanics. Um, so again, in retrospect, Super Frog, probably not that great of a platformer altogether. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But, no, I mean, but it, to be fair, like it was surprisingly smooth, and I think it had decent physics, and uh, it had some fun elements to it, like secret areas. Um, it tapped into that whole sort of like, you know, that was a big thing back in the day, like secrets in games. Uh, and it had a fun mechanic for that, where like walls, if you touched a soft spot of a wall, it would like unravel. Like your character would freeze in midair as like you watch like the wall like open up. Oh, that's cool, though. And uh, yeah, so it was cool. So it was fun like running around levels, like looking for all the secret areas, and uh, it had some fun music in it. Um, of course, being Super Frog, uh, there's a lot of like frog croaking sounds in it. Um, I remember. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I love animal noise. I, 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 you know, the track I picked. I don't remember if it has frog croaks in it or not. Oh man. Um, this is like the ancient pyramid theme. It's like this sort of like Egyptian inspired kind of thing. Um, fantastic track. But just a quick story. I remember playing some of this music. Uh, at an eight static, like in between bands, or maybe when the event was over, <laughs> while while uh, Don Miller was talking on the microphone, and he just kind of like looked around, like, "What the hell is this music?" Like he was like, he was like, "Turn this awful music off. What is this?" I was like, "Oh, it's Super Frog." Like, you know. So come on, man, respect the classics. Exactly. Uh, so again, here's the uh, ancient pyramid from Super Frog. Thank you. 
Is this the track you played while Tom Miller was talking? You know, I think this was the track I played while Tom Miller was talking. look on his face like it like it's just like i could just see it like what like you're like what the hell is this because he told me to like hey play some like cool old chip tune like video game music you know like kind of like in between bands or whatever he gave me like control of the ipod or whatever and i was like all right i'll play i'll play what i want to play and then it's kind it of like, like i think he reg- so regretted giving me control so <laughs> sorry it's gonna take me some time to calm down from that like i could just I can just imagine the look on his face, and it just keeps cracking me up over and over again. Oh, he, he still remembers that happening, too. So, uh, yeah, this, this, this whole segment of the episode is dedicated to Don Miller. Super Frog. And I think we stopped mentioning dates. We're in 1993 here. Uh, so following up with another 1993 title, you have another Sega selection, uh, this time Sega Genesis instead of Sega CD. Yeah, interestingly enough. Um, so this is Joe Montana 2 Sports, or timeout for a second here. Is it Joe Montana Sports Talk Football 2 or Joe Montana 2 Sports Talk Football? I, and if it uh, is no, Joe Montana 2 Sports Talk Football, I'm going to start laughing. It was. So this is Joe Montana 2 Sports Talk Football, not to be confused with Joe Montana Sports Talk Football. Shouldn't they just call it Joe Montana Sports Talk Football 2? I'm not really sure. Um, (laughs) This is a game, weirdly enough, that entered my household as a used game that was my little brother. Uh, And my little brother's not a gamer at all. He just like he had like a couple games he'd play. And Joe Montana Sports Talk Football was one he would play incessantly. Um, It has this like deadpan voice announcer that like kind of says everything and it's like a a specific candor and so not only are we going to listen to a track of here which kind of shows the introduction to this game but it has a little brief introduction of what that kind of sounds like you know as as the game welcomes you to joe montana sports talk football welcome to joe montana sports talk football So that's like a track that I would hear, you know, on sun- on Saturday morning at like seven o'clock in the morning. I shared the same room with my little brother and he would at that time we had a second TV by then. And that would just come flipping on and I'd be like, oh, my God, not this morning. You know, and it, like that guy, like when you actually play the game, that guy's kind of weird, old timey voice just talks throughout the entire game. Um I mean, it's it's pretty innovative, and the gameplay is actually pretty fun. I still play it from time to time, just kind of like you know, if I have some friends over and we're drinking and we just want to play like a stupid game. Um, but it's it's actually you know, it, it's just a kind of a weird memory of like my uh, growth as a video game person dealing with uh, Joe Montana and his sports talk football. Back to throw, going deep, incomplete. 
Okay, so we have one more selection from 1993. Uh, this is another pick of yours, uh, SimCity 2000. You know, I actually didn't really. This is I never really played the SimCity games. I saw other people play them, um, but yeah, I, n- I never got the proper SimCity experience. Oh, interesting. Because there was an Amiga version uh, actually oh, yeah. of this, uh, the, and it's cool because the uh, the soundtrack is actually done by uh, TDK Knight or Mark TDK Knight, which is pretty cool. Um, who's still kind of active in the community and is a pretty cool dude. So uh, shout out to him if he's listening. Um, so the actual version I remember the most is the Macintosh version, um, which uses, uh, I guess, the Apple Sound Manager. Uh, from what I understand, it's like a combination of Wavetable. I kind of mentioned it uh, before. It, it just sounds really strange. It has its own kind of unique sound. So it's not like CD quality, but it, it's kind of smooth sounding. I mean, I guess it sounds... It doesn't sound Amiga-y. It's just kind of its own thing. The composer for this is actually Sue Casper. I have no clue who that is, but she's the original composer for all of SimCity 2000 music. So that, that's one of the, if I can remember in terms of actually female composers, that might be one of the female composers on this list, I think, right? Um, so anyway, yeah, possibly. Mm-hmm. There's various songs that play during the gameplay uh, SimCity 2000, uh, and they're all really memorable. Some of them are telling you, you, you know, when like the paper appears, it tells you that you basically suck, and you know the towns hate you, or that you're doing a good job. Uh, and I can't remember exactly what the sentiment is for this one, uh, but this particular one uh, from SimCity 2000 is one that really sticks in my brain when I think of the game. So let's take a listen. So I mentioned I didn't get the SimCity uh, experience, but I did get the SimAnt experience. Oh, nice. Yeah, I played a, a bunch of SimAnt. Uh, I thought that game was great. Can't, didn't you become, like, immortal if you took the ant and made him crawl into the the outlet or something? Or was that only in, like, certain versions? Uh, you know, I don't remember that being a thing. Um, my memory's a little hazy of that game, but I do remember there would be, like, those ant lions, like those those creepy bugs in those holes that would like kill your ants. But I remember if you swarmed them with a bunch of ants and you weren't afraid to like sacrifice some, you could kill mm-hmm. them and they'd turn into like a big stockpile of food. Oh, um, nice. That was pretty fantastic. And there was other stuff. I remember like digging really deep in that game. And sometimes you could find like warps to other parts of the yard or something. <laughs> uh, some s- strange stuff in that game. There are some, there are some weird games, man. Like those, those like <laughs> yeah. for kind of forgotten sim games are like, really weird i wish they'd bring them back like like an hd version or like it'd be great to just play like sim ant on my phone you know just oh, like totally. a, a mobile version of sim ant would be fantastic yeah yeah i really want to see bubble ghost resurrected actually that's like the one thing from my list that i think could work well as like a an app kind of game mm-hmm. um and that's, we, we, that's we'll just you... talk to the right people and do it <laughs> 
exactly yeah i mean i i can't imagine it costs that much to license it or whatever um because mm-hmm. that that's a pretty simple mechanics it's like you you you're a ghost and you're blowing a bubble around to navigate it to an exit and trying to not push it to anything that'll pop it um mm-hmm. so it's a really simple concept that like i could work well with like any number of control inputs i think yeah okay so next on the list is a game i think we talked about this in a previous episode where you and i both like have this thing where we had this game and we love the music from it and then later found out it was like stock music that was not composed for the game yeah yeah um and yours is on this list as well uh yeah it's, it's a, yeah it, we're, we'll get to it <laughs> yeah so uh we're in 1994 now this is a game called the labyrinth of time um it was like a first person view uh point and click adventure game sort of like mist mm-hmm. and uh I just remember being like really into the game and loving the creepy music. It's a really long track of music. I think it's like 24 minutes long, maybe a bit longer. Uh, It's just on one long loop, continuous loop. Um, But as it turns out, it was stock music. And what I thought were like different movements in this one long track are actually just like different songs. Uh, <laughs> and uh, someone on YouTube actually like went through their effort of like finding the original sources of them. I think there's a website like apmmusic.com um, that has some of these tracks. So, uh, and I swear, I think I heard one of these tracks. I can't remember if I mentioned this in the previous episode, but um, I believe one of these tracks shows up briefly in a Pete and Pete uh, episode. <laughs> Yeah, I think you did mention that because that sounds familiar. Yeah, and I haven't like found the time to like sit down. And I remember Pete and Pete being like a pretty great show. Uh, I remember thinking it was funny. So uh, I, I'm due for a rewatch, but I'm not gonna like watch it the whole thing specifically just to look for this one audio example. But um, I remember hearing it a long time ago and thinking like, oh, that's the music from Labyrinth of Time. What the heck? And then it sort of all made sense. Like, oh, if it's stock music, that makes sense. So yeah. I'm actually I'm gonna play the bit of music that I think is like what shows up in Pete and Pete. Um, So uh, here it is. So I guess the next uh, song on this list, would, uh, we're kind of in 1994 now. And I didn't play this game when it originally came out, but you know, uh, it would be remit- uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Final Fantasy VI in some capacity uh, as having a heavy, heavy influence on pretty much me doing music in general. Um, 1994, 1995 was uh, fourth grade. That's when I actually had to pick an instrument, uh, you know, and so I picked tuba, which. Yes, yeah, that's, that's awesome story. Yeah, yeah. No, well, actually, so I'll tell the story. I may as well. Um, basically, uh, our next door neighbors had uh, a dog that used to bark all the time. And me and my parents thought it would be very funny if I got an instrument that was very loud to play out the window. So when I used to practice in fourth and fifth grade, like, you know, terrible noises that the instrument used to make, I used <laughs> to open the window that was facing their yard and play right out the window. <laughs> so you know people will think of me as a troll i've been a troll for a very long time um <laughs> apparently and i come from a troll family so uh, I, but, I should and, i should point out to the listeners by the way sorry to interrupt um i don't know if all the listeners know but you are an excellent tuba player 
to the, like to this day. That's not it's not like something you played as a kid and it was like, oh, you know, I, like I played cello as a kid. I can't say I play cello. Um, but like you are act- actually you play like complicated stuff on there. I've seen you play um, with your NES uh, chiptune music. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of how that's all lived on. I, I got my I got two degrees in tuba, like I got a master's in it, and played orchestras and stuff like that. I mean, I it's one of those things where it's kind of like. Uh, I could have gone many other different directions, I guess, and tuba is the instrument that I ended up playing. Uh, and I think a lot of it really was, especially, I also played bass. I think a lot of it I really owe to Final Fantasy VI, um, simply because uh, there's a lot of tuba patches in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what's really cool. Of course, the example I p- did pick doesn't necessarily have tuba in it, but it was most, it was very orchestral. Um, and even more so than, say, Final Fantasy IV, which was two for us, which was kind of like slap bass and still kind of that old style. Final Fantasy VI is kind of an orchestral masterpiece, and it's kind of set to, uh, you know, an opera with acts. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. and there's an opera inside of an opera. That's kind of the joke, you know, because any good opera has a fake opera inside of it, you know, like um, kind of the mm-hmm. thing. So one of the t- tunes that I remember being haunting to me and kind of um, – just something that I always thought was a really kind of interesting tune is a tune that plays in the emperor the empire's uh, capital city, which is Gestal. Um, so here's the empire's capital city Gestal theme. It's a great track. I think um, you mentioned it in the Super Nintendo episode, but this is the game, right, that, like, you rented to death until, like, they, the guy just offered you to, like, buy it for cheap or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, I actually did. Uh, and it's a game that I, uh, in anger, threw across the room and then had 255 of every item for some reason. Um, Whoa. Yeah, I, yeah I, I don't know what I did to it, but for some reason, when I turned the game back on, I had destroyed it. Um, something weird had happened to my save files, so... Uh, you know, if you want unlimited items, I think one of the suggestions I would have is to take your, you know, expensive old uh, Super Nintendo game and and throw it across the room because you're angry at the uh, floating continent, um, which still gives me really 
terrible flashbacks. I think I actually, my mom actually had to turn the game off and tell me to go to my room because I was crying so much when I was playing that because I was so bad at it. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Embarrassing. We're telling embarrassing stories today. It's perfectly fine. Uh, so on a lighter side here, here's my last entry here. Uh, and uh, eventually we got like, uh, uh, you know, I had some Macintosh stuff on here. Uh, and some of it's going to be in the bonus episode too, because I also had an Apple 2GS. Uh, but I guess my last entry here is from a great game, uh, Escape Velocity for Macintosh. Many people know this game, and I've met many people who are from diverse backgrounds who just for some reason know this game. Uh, and anyone who knows this game loves this game. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, or weirdly, the intro to this game happens to be, as Patrick was saying, it's another like song that they just bought to use at the intro. Uh, Ambrosia Software did not have an in-house composer, so they just purchased some kind of like weird soundtrack. I uh, and the way I learned this is very interesting. I was listening to my grandfather used to drive us around, and he, he had on, I guess it was just like the standard sports, you know, uh, rundown or whatever. And it's like, okay, we're going to someone in the sports. It was on the radio station, and this was the background music to the guy's sports announcement. I'm like, that's the Escape Velocity theme. How did they get the rights to it? You know, being a stupid kid. Um, but apparently, yeah, I, they must have bought it. So this is, uh, it's interesting too, because this is called The Face of the Enemy. Um, and this would play only at the loading screen. It never played anywhere else. So if you had a very fast Macintosh, like a Power Mac or something, you only heard 13 to 15 seconds of this song. Ah, gotcha. Um, if you had a slow one, you heard all of the song. <laughs> and I had a slow one. Um, so I remember yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of this theme. So let's take a <laughs> listen to The Face of the Enemy from Escape Velocity.
played this on the emulator and I was really excited to hear the intro. Uh, cause like, I mean, it, it, you have to use some wizardry to get this to work too, uh, on a modern system. Um, and it played the intro song for like a 10th of a second. Oh, <laughs> cause no, it loaded so fast. Very upset by that, but yeah. Um, so I have a couple more selections. This is, uh, going into 1997 now, actually. And, uh, this, we're transferring from the Amiga to the PC now. Uh, I think the first Windows machine we had in my house was a Windows 95. Um, but I, I can't remember any PC games, uh, before this, that like where the music really stuck out to me, like it did on the Amiga, um, I'm actually closing out uh, this segment of the episode with two LucasArts games. So the first one is Outlaws. Uh, the music is by Clint Bajakian. Uh, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Uh, this composer actually did music for Secret of Monkey Island 2, uh, LeChuck's Revenge, and Day of the Tentacle. Um, oh, wow. so, so there's someone who, who was you know around for earlier LucasArts games. and uh, But now they've gone on to do God of War 3 and I think like the entire Uncharted series. <sighs> They're all, um, yeah, humble beginnings to wow geez. yeah exactly so the person is definitely still going strong as a composer today and actually you can see why um because i think uh that law's soundtrack might be one of their earlier soundtracks that has a lot of like high quality audio so to speak mm-hmm. um where there is synthesized stuff in there but there's some real instruments mixed in as well and it has a very like um what's his name again morricone i forget uh Forgetting his first what's his first name again? Is, uh, is oh, Eugene? N-E-O. Oh yeah, Ennio. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eugene Morricone. Yeah. Oh man, I get killed. <laughs> Please don't include that. No, 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 I'll edit that out. That was a lie. But the two the two tracks I'm closing out with here have a sort of like a Hispanic uh influence on the sound. So mm-hmm. uh this track is called Sanchez the Outlaw.
And so my last selection here is from uh, Grim Fandango. So that actually puts like three LucasArts or LucasFilms games uh, on my list here, uh, going back again, because it's Secret of Monkey Island as well. They just made so many great games that were a big, big part of my childhood. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Grim Fandango, again, like Outlaws, is one of those earlier like CD quality audio soundtracks that I just fell in love with. Um, there's this one track here, Ninth Heaven, uh, which is a great song, uh, has a sort of like Peruvian sounding influence to it. Uh, let's give it a listen. Yeah, I remember, like, that's the music to one of, like, the outdoor festival areas, and I remember just having the character sit there uh, just so I could, like, listen to that song on loop. It, it, it's interesting, too, because, like, I think you can kind of almost hear the influence from the last thing, and I guess, I guess but Jackie and, and Peter McConnell is the composer of that track, worked a lot together, or, or you know are associated with each other very often. So, it, it, I mean, LucasArts was pumping out, like, amazing stuff. Uh, it always has. I mean, traditionally, yeah. like from the even just from like the X-Wing TIE Fighter, even the Star Wars series stuff they did was always just fantastic. Um, and Grim Fandango is probably one of the greatest 90s PC games of all time. I can say that confidently, I think. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, th- yeah, I, felt, like, I felt very much that game was a work of art. It had a very... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> You know, I'm very, like, gameplay-oriented with a lot of games. Like, my, some of my favorite games are, like, Castlevania, Mega Man, mm-hmm. Dark Souls. Um, but I do have a soft spot for games with great stories. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I experienced a lot of those in adventure games. And just Grim Fandango, like, when that story wrapped up, I was like, this is a great, great story. Like, this feels like this should be, like, a Disney film or something. Um, yeah. It just ha- it had a very cohesive plot and story and the resolution was very solid and uh so that that to me was when a lot of people talk about uh, like our vi- video games art can they be considered as art which i always thought was kind of a silly debate uh yeah. in, the fir- in the first place um because if you're if you're sitting around waiting for like what's the great gatsby of uh video games or what's the what's the gone with the wind of video games like a lot of people critical of video games as art uh are waiting for um some sort of like example that everyone could agree on to prove that video games can be art and i feel like uh if you do that though you run the risk of um not really appreciating video games in the medium that they actually are 
Mm-hmm. And I feel like they don't really have that burden of proof in it as well. I feel like video games are video games. Um, yeah, I, 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 I've agreed. I've actually written about this on my blog a long time ago mm-hmm. where they were saying that we should apply uh, – one of the things that the game historian should apply is uh, the lens of film onto video games. And it's like I don't think video games and films have enough in common – for for you for film majors to say oh we have video games too i think video games is its own study and has its own background and has its own theory right. and i think that honestly like the the study of video games as an art deserves its own classification and its own like heroes of, of the genre you know of people the academics and i've always been thought very strongly about that and there's yeah. a lot of people who are like the early people who are looking into this because it's going to take a very long time to convince people it took a long time yeah. to convince people that film was art um, so I, I, you know, I, I'm hoping that we get to that point and yeah. I feel very strongly that, um, you know, uh, it, it is art and it's, oh, own yeah, way, it, and it needs to be, I mean, that's why we do this. It's class. Yeah. It needs to be classified as its own thing. I mean, you know, think of Kevin Burke, think of people who are studying this mm-hmm. as, as, as an academic discourse or just an academic exercise. Um, there's a lot in here that is purposeful. The understanding of each one of these consoles and their limitations is what makes the art so amazing. Like thinking about of what you could do in 1998 and thinking what Green Fandango accomplishes in 1998. Um, you know, it can't be compared to, you know, Uncharted 3 or something. Right, you know? right. Like, so I, I think that, you know, there are people who, we have to think of it that way. You know, and a lot of, a lot of newer games take that cue directly from film, interactive film. There's a lot of games that almost say that they're interactive film and that's a genre, but that's not everything, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I've thought long and hard about this, but I really think that it, uh, you know, in the future of this is, and hopefully, you know, in 10 to 20 years, we have people looking at it at, uh, you know, as it, in its own box and drawing from other things. So it's all art draws from everything, but drawing from everything as its own genre, as its own place in art, uh, you know, with all the other different kinds of things that people are making. Absolutely. I always felt like if, if I couldn't convince you that Grim Fandango was art, then it's sort of like it reaches the point where uh, the burden doesn't need to be placed on convincing anyone at that point it's just like agree Mm -hmm. to disagree because i just feel like you're missing out on you know recognizing it for this amazing creation of you know of what it is so i mean it was made to sell but it was also made you know and and inside of that idea of what you're trying to do is sell i mean every film was made to sell too you know people didn't make films just for the hell of it they made like you know think of kurosawa kurosawa tried to sell all his films to try to make as much money as possible so that's part of it but in that, like some uh, like composers and artists and uh, story writers did some very amazing things. So uh, I guess that's our two cents on that. <laughs> Absolutely. So for the second sort of main chunk of this episode, again, we want to just share our sort of history and how we got into chip music, um, because I feel like that's the, the sort of like next layer to unravel. A lot of people grew up as fans of video game music, um, not ever necessarily winds up doing like the weird deep dive kind of stuff that you and I both got into. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to start off by asking you, uh, like, 
was there like an obvious spark of starting the chip music stuff? Was there a smooth continuum? Because like for me, there's a pretty clear break of like, oh, I grew up with video game music, but then I had a rediscovery that really pulled me back into it. I guess I just always uh, liked video game music. And I always like, I guess as a kid, I always just wanted a way to listen to it without the game. Um, and oh, yeah. like, I used to like order soundtracks. Uh, it was interesting. One of the malls by me uh, when I growing up, uh, the Palisades mall used to have this cart and it was just like, you know, like it sold basically anime stuff. And for whatever reason, it sold a very expensive price like just video game soundtracks like oh, wow. the final fantasy four soundtrack the official one on four discs oh okay i think it might have been three discs whatever but like i was able to buy that stuff but that wasn't until like 1999 right. um, i used to use like the early internet and i had a macintosh so it was harder to use the early internet um, <laughs> but i mean i used to save up midi files and mod files and it files and xm files that were just covers of them and listen to them incessantly because that was the best i could do Mod files tended to get pretty close to, to what you'd expect from uh, Final Fantasy. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, basically knowing the, the tech now, yes, they would. I remember that I used to go to what used to be the unofficial Square website or unofficial square.net, which today lives on as RP Gamer. I think that's the RP Gamer was unofficial Square. Oh, wow. uh, and they used okay. to have the Music House or whatever. And in the Music House, they used to have these IT files and mod files. And this one mod file was very proud of themselves. I remember this. I forget who wrote it, but was very proud of themselves because they had secured the actual snare drum. They figured the snare drum out from that that was used to make Final Fantasy VI. They found the sound for it and they included it uh, where it was supposed to be in the battle theme. The rest of it was garbage, but that snare drum was <laughs> completely accurate. So oh, wow. I guess it's always just been kind of like a journey of finding and collecting music. I, I, I guess really what I used to be on a lot of old FTP and like uh, AOL used to have these like chains of people <clears throat> who would share soundtracks that they pulled from FTP or pulled from games or whatever they could find. And it would just be like a big glut of like oof, really compressed waves. And <laughs> some of the files I have for Chrono Trigger that are still like in, uh, in my archives are like MP2s. I didn't even know you could have an MP2, oh, but wow. apparently they are. It, it sounds like garbage. Um and I guess it just, it, it was always just something I was always interested in. And since I played music, I, I, from a young age, I just wanted to write music for video games. Um, I remember in sixth or seventh grade writing that in like, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And that's what I said I wanted to do. I wanted to use the tuba to find a way to write music for video games. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I mean, I've been trying, it's kind of like Manifest Destiny that I guess I, I'm able to do some of that stuff now because uh, that's what I set out to do when I was a kid. And, it's really strange that, you know, if I was to talk to, you know, 14 year old me 20 years ago, I'd be like, hey, guess what? You're doing that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in kind of the way you thought you would. It's 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 very strange <clears throat> to me. But I mean, it's been a natural progression from then to kind of learning how to compose on my own. My original compositions are terrible. It's all like fake bit garbage. Well, so speaking of which, how did you break the ice on actually making uh, chiptune music? I'm, cu- I'm curious how that compares to my sort of, like, discovery of how to do it. Like, do you remember the earliest software you used to make uh, chiptune-sounding stuff? So I used I, I used all kinds of weird stuff. I used to just take Finale. This is terrible. I used to take Finale because it, <clears throat> it was the only program I could figure out how to use because it was sheet music. Right. Mm-hmm. And so not a tracker or anything. And then I would write stuff and then like assign square, assign saw, assign, you know, ah, okay. mm-hmm. whatever it was. Um, 
I remember in 2007, I mean, I used to just, and I mean, I used, I'm not, wasn't a great composer. I, I, I was about to say I'm not a great composer, but and I don't false. think that's so. false. I, you're very, no, you're very good. No, no, there's a lot to learn, but I, I think that uh, I've gotten better. And I think you wrote that the, the, you wrote the, the, if listeners aren't familiar, Steve wrote the theme song to this show um, and a ton of other just amazing music. So uh, Steve's being <laughs> I humble, but that. I like, if I want to hire someone like that, I was come, com- confident that i could give directions to you like oh write a jazzy tune oh write like a polka tune oh write like a a funk tune like i'm very confident steve could just like do that like whereas like i've written some music and i've written some music i'm proud of um a a little bit i can't do that though (laughs) i don't i don't have that steve does so just just putting that out there oh i i really appreciate that so so if anyone needs any no just kidding um (laughs) yeah you have my email address um but and so in 2007, uh, I realized that, you know, I could never really seem to get <clears throat> the right sounds. Um, and I, I remember this. I, I got my master's. I was going to get my master's degree and I moved to Philadelphia. And I was looking up to see, like, what makes what you can use to actually make sounds that sound like chiptunes. So I think it was like I, I this could the right timeline could be disputed if like Family Tracker didn't exist at this point. But I remember downloading Family Tracker somewhere between 2007 and 2009, putting it on my computer and like fooling around with it and doing like Sweet It in Two covers with it. I think I did like a cover of Gothic Necklord. It's somewhere. It's terrible, and we shouldn't play it here because it's terrible. <laughs> doing that and i remember also reading like oh so are there like other people who are interested in this and so i was sorry uh there's thunder i have a there's a thunderstorm going on here oh, so sure. i'm trying to speak in between the thunder here um so I, I guess i was aware of the the demo scene and just other things that were going on with tracker files i was never it, it just seemed like it was something that was going on in europe and not in the u.s so in a weird parallel dimension i was doing all this in 2007 2008 2009 without really knowing anything about what was going on in new york or in the town i was in which was philadelphia um so <laughs> i had no clue that there were artists doing this right down the street for me and i was just collecting this information uselessly and putting it on my blog and other places um so <laughs> I, I guess long story short i started putting this all the information that i was finding onto a blog yes um, where, where our world sort of yeah. collided there but we didn't know who each other actually were until years later so um I, I'll, I'll say a little bit about what i remember um it, you're, it was classical gaming right on wordpress and yep. uh mm-hmm. man i remember being linked to your blog or just searching for things and finding your blog and reading a bunch of stuff there and i was like oh you know there's a bunch of great stuff here uh you seem to remember though like i like corrected you on something like <laughs> oh yeah i so so i i, I will read your actual comment verbatim because i think the best part about this is, is this is 2012 i think we've both gotten a lot better at this there's i, I think so I basically had originally implied that like the VRC two and the VRC three were used in like Contra, or I think VRC two is used in Contra, but there was no sound expansion. But I argued there was because I had no clue oh, what okay. it was. 
Um, and like the sound expansion post was the very first post on my blog in like 2010. Um, and I just discovered it and I thought it was so smart that I discovered it. And I was the only person who knew about it. Uh, and February, February 27th, 2011 uh, was when I posted this. And then so you uh -oh. posted on here on, let's see, May 7th, 2012. And here's what you wrote uh, under the handle mm -hmm. Bucky. Hey there. Awesome site. I run the YouTube channel Explode to. How do you actually say that? Is it Explode to uh, AO3? I, I, I say Explode. That's a reference to um, shoot. What's that game called? Why am I forgetting the one where you kill Hitler at the end? Oh, Bionic Commando. Uh, where they make they he uh, says like okay. oh you know the the base is about to explode or whatever because they they mistyped Explode. I was always I was always thinking that somehow the two was also an E, but that doesn't make any sense because a three would be so okay. Now now that's see I just learned okay. something now too. So. Here's what you wrote. Uh, I run the YouTube channel Explod to AO3. Wanted to share a quick correction on the Mappers oh, sound expansion. The Mappers and <laughs> the Mappers themselves have a range of uses, most of which are unrelated to music, and just a minority of games have sound expansion. Only the Konami VRC6, Konami VRC7, Sunsoft 5B, and Nintendo MMC5, and Namco N163 mappers were used for sound expansion. Not counting the Famicom Disk System, which qualifies as its own category of sound expansion, as you pointed out. Interesting. <clears throat> so, and then you go on. The VRC2 is not lending any extra sound to Contra, and the same is true for Batman Return of the Joker with the FME7. These were comprised of five sound channels and have the same sound qualities as other expansionless soundtracks. Looking up the MFC5 can be a bit frustrating, uh, sorry, a bit confusing, because while it can be used for sound expansion in the Famicom games, it wasn't uh, in use in NES games like Castlevania 3. It's being used for other purposes. Oh, okay. Sorry, waiting for the yeah, thunder. That's that sounds most right. Did I get the wrong name for the Namco chip in there? Probably. So, let's see. Okay, here's what you wrote, and this is you know this is something I thought was really funny here. Uh, so yeah, everything was right so far, but this. Uh, a good way to make sure these mappers are actually being used for sound expansion is to fire up the NSF file and see if there's more than five and more than five channels are being used. And when in doubt. It, it, you know, if it's for the an American NES, there's no audio expansion, which isn't to say that extra mappers aren't helping the music in some way, because it might be possible for, that they help indirectly. <laughs> uh, interesting. I wonder if I wonder what my thought process on that was maybe like uh, mm -hmm. more more there's resources could be in the game. So the music could be bigger or I don't know what I was thinking with that. Yeah. Hold on, waiting for the thunderclap here. That that actually peaked my uh, set my mic here. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't. I think my train of thought was I'd heard of bank switching, but didn't know anything technical about it. Like in my head, it's like, oh, uh, sometimes games like do this complicated stuff to draw for more resources. So I was just like, uh, mappers might cram more stuff in there, meaning it could help the music in some way like there's more resources to pull from uh i still don't know if that's true or not you know like if i mean it must be in some mm -hmm. way right i don't know <laughs> it, i mean it could be i just thought it was something that's funny that's kind of like you know uh it's something that we don't have the answer to and you asked this question like five oh, totally. years ago <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, i can see the, i can see the limits of my own knowledge in that response it's funny um it's 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 funny though because like we we've learned so much more since then and obviously my I after that you said that I got embarrassed and literally just like changed the whole freaking thing um, to make sure that everything was correct. But that's funny because that's that's the um, first time we ever interacted. But it was also the last time I probably 
we'd interacted for a very long time um just because we didn't yeah. know each other you know it was just sort of like oh the, the, there's here's a blog um i'll talk more a b- bit about like my own blogs that i was running uh at the same time in a moment um but yeah it was weird it was i knew of your stuff and i think you knew of my youtube channel um but we just sort of existed in parallel uh until until actually not yeah. long before the podcast got started which is kind of crazy to me yeah that, that is kind of crazy it, it's funny because like in this article here there's like three links to things that you posted like i think I, I started to like here's your actual gimmick happy birthday posted by you inside this as a sunsaw 5b example and i think that was something that uh, was kind of like so it, what was really interesting i guess is that continuing to develop in parallel as you said I took all this information uh, and was asked to, uh, to present my information about sound expansion to Philadelphia's Nerd Night. Again, not knowing that eight static exists. Again, not knowing anything that's going on in Philadelphia. And this is like 2000. 12 mm-hmm. 2013 something like that so i mean each static's been around for a very long time at this point and a lot of things have happened uh in chiptune and i'm like pretending it's this new thing and i'm, I'm completely ignorant of everything so i go and present this at philadelphia nerd night and the actual uh, in, in the audience is chipocrit oh, okay. yeah. um, which then i talked to him and he's like who the hell are you why don't you know anything about the rest of this community like what are you doing he probably said that very politely though <laughs> oh yeah yeah i'm sure and then i was like oh yeah you know i did all this stuff and he's like i know who explode 2803 is i like i played in the band with him and i'm like are you kidding me so someone like and he's like yeah he, he's from philly because i think as of 2012 you were still here or had you not left yet maybe that's right around mm-hmm. when i moved out from philly okay. um so yeah the weird misconnection um yeah because you were in philly while I was doing all of this, but I didn't know who you were. And I was yeah. using all of your resources to, to, like, you know, I could have been using resources from anyone, but I was using your resources on a website. And you were probably like, I was in Old City. You were probably within two miles from me. It's crazy. So, I would have, I would have loved to have just like come over and hung out to like talk about video game music. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's a really funny thing that that didn't happen. It never did. Yeah. Um, um and so I guess Paul kind of convinced me to start making my own chip music and then I played open mic and then that's kind of how I ended up here. Um, but it was also kind of like linked in, like, I guess part of my chiptune journey was also linked to you because I used you to learn the stuff I knew, you know what I mean? Like watching your videos on how to develop and how the different sound channels work and how the different commands in family tracker work and how the VRC six works All those little uh, uh, tutorial videos you had where it was just kind of like black and white were like Bible to me. And I, I've written, wrote entire articles on my website of how th- that tells you how to use everything, which is just like <laughs> hilarious. Well, you know, it's funny too. So you mentioned like the black and white tutorial videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one of those like made in a similar format um, that was about the VRC6 that wasn't by me. Um, mm-hmm. that's bu- That was by Hun Retro Geek. What? Yeah. So this is so weird. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that it's again another occurrence of we've met on Retro Geek now through the podcast, um, but we did have like kind of random encounters online before through YouTube. Um, similar thing with Mr. Norbert as well, where it's just like he's someone I knew of from YouTube, but I think never mm-hmm. spoke with directly uh, until we started doing the podcast. But you know, maybe we spoke through like comments on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like weird, small world, small uh, community. Sometimes it's crazy. 
So how did you end up in all of this? You said there was kind of a gap and you rediscovered everything? Yeah, well, I always loved video game music. Um, it's like a similar thing that you went through where you wanted to be able to listen to the music outside of the games themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would sit there with like a tape recorder and like I didn't even know how to hook it up properly. It's like the audio out of the computer. So it was just like the, <laughs> the built-in microphone on like a, just a crappy tape recorder. Um, and I would sit there and I made like a compilation of some Amiga music. Um, so I always loved video game music, but there was a sort of rediscovery when I was in high school. Um, my brother had gotten, um, it's probably like between eighth, eighth and ninth grade when my brother had gotten an NES on eBay. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when like, I really, really started diving and and catching up on a lot of stuff. Um, cause I, I did play like Mario Duck Hunt a lot as a kid at a cousin, at my cousin's house, uh, Mm -hmm. played some Castlevania as well. Um, but like I had never played a Mega Man game until like, 1999 2000 like i totally missed all of that stuff when it was contemporary um and i just absolutely fell in love with the games and i remember my brother at one point saying like oh these games have great music just kind of like as an aside and it's like but that's that really really stuck with me and i started getting obsessed with like the the whole library of the nes and firing up different games like wolverine and being like oh my god this music is incredible yeah Uh, um so it was sort of like this rediscovery of older chiptune music that I missed out on, and I just I became absolutely obsessed with it. Um, I remember firing up the Nesticle emulator and like just digging up lots of random NES ROMs, and I just I you know I really really got into it. And um, I remember the first re- like major awakening for me that chiptune music was a possibility, that it was something that you could do. Was uh, I learned of this band called Chromalodeon. Mm-hmm. Um, People were posting about them on the mini bosses. You know, the mini bosses are a video game cover band. Um, people were discussing them on a forum, and they're a band based out of Philadelphia. And I really liked their music. And I had a band in high school that covered video game music. Um, so it was just sort of the type of thing that I would do at the time, where it was like, you know, if there were some smaller bands that I liked, I would just book a show and have my band open for the band that I liked, mm-hmm. um, just as a sort of way to like, hey, you know. And it, I think I did it pretty. Uh, pretty respectfully you know like there was nothing too obnoxious the lineups usually made sense um it was just a way to sort of like meet and play with with bands that i liked Mm -hmm. and uh so i remember booking a show at the teen center in my hometown uh with chromalodeon and they played an album that used some game boy on it and uh i believe the album was from 2005 2006 or so and this was the first time I ever heard chip music used, uh, accompanied with live instruments. And uh, it just sort of blew my mind. And that album called Heart of Sawdust wasn't very heavy with the Game Boy uh, tracks, but it's used as percussion in some tracks. Here, I can play a brief example here. You know, the chiptune music in Chromalodeon was arranged by Dino Leonetti. And uh, just all of the work that Dino came up with, just I was constantly impressed with everything that Dino came up with. I thought it was just absolutely amazing. 
Um, Dino was working with a program called LSDJ, Little Sound DJ. Um, might have also worked with Nanoloop in the very beginning, I'm not too sure. Um, but that just sort of set things in motion. And it wasn't too long later that I also met Joey Mariano, um, who makes music under the name Animal Style. Um, she plays guitar along with Game Boy, or at least that's how her, early, her earliest stuff was. So it's just sort of, it slowly met these this, this crew of people who were making chiptune music, and I was absolutely blown away by it. And Amanda Gucci as well. I had met Pete. Uh, he lived not too far, because uh, I grew up in Connecticut, so I wasn't too far from the New York area. Mm-hmm. It was the same thing. I remember booking them at the Teen Center. Um, there were some shows where like the band uh, rotation at the time was constantly changing. I remember seeing several shows where it was just Pete playing guitar with an NES and <laughs> no, no other live instruments. And I remember just thinking like, this kind of sucks because <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I loved their music and I had heard versions with like the full band before and just like hearing it stripped down. I was like, Oh no, no, it's missing something. Um, so that's sort of how I got sucked in. But then as far as making chip music goes, um, there's a person who, uh, goes under the handle Norn rad, or at least use the handle Norn rad. Uh, he made some awesome Konami inspired chiptune music. But Matt has also gone on to you know, compose video game soundtracks like uh, Retro City Rampage. I remember his thing back in the day was software called Modplug, which is a great sample-based tracker. It's like a modern tracker that you can use, and uh, you can export all different formats with it. Mod files, IT files, XM files. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically just stealing samples uh, from his mod files and putting them into my own uh, is how I got into it. So I started making... NES sounding music, um, but I didn't know how to do it like for real yet. So it was basically just d- using samples of NES music. And um, I remember though trying to break the ice with it. Like I opened up Famitracker at one, or I opened up Nerd Tracker at one point, right? Which is the like the earliest NES tracker. Mm-hmm. Just being absolutely confused and lost and just hated it. Uh, I remember I wanted to use it because that's what Animanaguchi was using at the time. Uh, I but I just I couldn't make sense of it. So then I tried to make sense of Famitracker, and again, I got really dismayed. I sort of already was, had used Modplug, so I had a basic understanding of the tracker format at that point, but just like something... I'm really bad at reading tutorials, and I don't have the patience for it, which is a really, really bad uh, position to be in if you're trying to learn how to make chiptune music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember understanding the sound editor a little bit. So it's like I had trouble with arranging music in the tracker space, but I could at least make sounds by dragging around the... The, the the volume parameters and stuff like that. So yeah. I would I would sample stuff in there and then put it back into Modplug, and then I would start making more and more elaborate sample packs where it's like I would build really complex sounds where it was sort of like oh attack with a certain duty cycle then sustain on another um, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily see in sample based stuff as much. Mm-hmm. Um, really trying to milk the NES for what it could do. Like I, I had big envy for like what the hardware could do, wanting to do it in Modplug. Um, so I made, I started making like sample packs where there were, there were over like a hundred NES samples. Um, and I just got like really, really obsessed with it. And eventually, you know, uh, eventually cracked the code on that and just finally got comfortable with Famitracker. And that, that was sort of uh, how I got into it. But, um, 
even to this day, I mean, I'm not a chiptune composer. I don't <laughs> consider myself a chiptune composer. Um, I've made some stuff that I'm proud of, but I consider myself more of just an enthusiast of the sound, you know, hence why I do stuff like this podcast instead of actually, uh, you know, making music. So, yeah. So um, I guess maybe just kind of thinking about how that kind of goes through with all this, like maybe we should talk a little bit about how this podcast came about then. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you played a show that was a live-streamed 8-Static. I think they called it 8-TV. 8-Static TV, yeah. Yeah, and this was a show, again, with uh, Cheap Dinosaurs. Uh, This is uh, the current band of Dino Leonetti, um, whom I played drums for for some years, but at the time, uh, you know, I'd already moved away from Philly. And you also played with Joey, uh, Joey Mariano, Animal Style. Mm Yeah. and Joey had told me, cause, so I, I mentioned to Joey, like, hey, you know, I'm looking forward to your live set. This is going to be cool. And she had told me, oh, you know, we're playing with this APOC guy. Are you familiar with his music yet? And I was like, oh, you know, no, no, I'm not actually. I haven't heard his stuff yet. And Joey told me that, like, oh, Steve's a fan of your YouTube channel and stuff. And actually, you know, is a big fan of, like, the Xplod 2803 channel. I was like, oh, that's awesome. So I stuck around and I watched your set. And I was like, oh, this is really, this is really crazy shit. Um, you have this really, like, prog rock crazy complex nes music uh accompanied with uh tuba and <laughs> yeah it, it it sounded fantastic like the the brassy deep brassy sounds mixed with nes very well um the stream quality was like legend it was like, made to look like cable access tv kind of stuff like that that, I, that was one of the coolest streams i've ever been a part of I, I wish we could do it again that was literally one of the coolest things that ever happened like that was such a cool stream uh, and just like the, the idea behind it and everything to look like, you know, almost public access with like a green screen. Yeah. Oh, no, it, it was great. Um, and then I think it was later in that same year, uh, there was the eight static fest. Yeah. And like I had come up to Philly for that and uh, you had played at that. So like I think I introduced myself or someone pointed pointed you out and said, hey, this is Steve. And then we just talked for a while about video game music, right? Like that, yeah, it was like it was like a good hour actually. We like on and off, yeah. At least we were like in the kitchen or green room area or whatever, whatever it was of the venue, and uh, I just remember talking about like Castlevania three a lot. Uh, you said something like you had a band that covered or like arranged Castlevania three music. Is that right? Or you did some for your school band? Oh, uh, I mean, it's interesting because that's part of it too. Like, I guess I had developed a VGM band with some of my friends, like kind of before I even went to uh, do Nerd Night, and I was doing kind of NES stuff. It was called Beta Test, and we were trying to cover everything originally without. Uh, you have to excuse me here. Like we have a massive thunderstorm going on here. You can probably hear it a little bit of my audio. So I'm just going to keep going. But, you know, yeah. if you're wondering what that is, it's not like, you know, I'm in a war zone or something here. Um, so we had a band called Beta Test and Beta Test music uh, was kind of the whole point of it was to originally cover everything in almost like a, a, a quintet format. So we were, like I had assumed that since the NES had five channels that we could use five different musicians to cover each channel. Uh, mm-hmm. And kind of like really make it so there was no. <laughs> Sorry, this is ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> this is so ridiculous here. Uh, we can cut all this. Give it a second here. I mean, I this is the worst thunderstorm I've heard all year. I'm sure my dogs are like dying uh, right now. <laughs> um, okay, so the the idea was to cover with one percent per track, and it was difficult because like a lot of music that was written for the NES is impossible to play, but the whole goal was that we were going to play it anyway. And I think that was kind of the fun of it. Um, Mm -hmm. We got some really good musicians together, uh, some of which have gone on to do some pretty crazy stuff in the avant-garde scenes. 
Um, and oh, we, cool. we would just like hit it. I mean, like I could play. So there's a recording of me actually playing the baseline to the Turtles to the Arcade game NES, which is like insane. I mean, we we every single one of our tracks was like that. Um, so we can like, I guess it's on YouTube, so it's going to sound a little crappy, but we can listen to a little of that here. the rest of the music we played uh, here uh in, you know betatest.bandcamp.com it's it's old i mean like it, it wasn't like the greatest we didn't really get a uh, a good way to, to record all this stuff it, a lot of this is live i'd say that if you're gonna listen to any of the albums here the live at the william way concert we did at the william way center uh down here in philadelphia is really good i think we played a really good show and that shows you kind of what it could be like our, our general concept um so yeah, I mean, it's, it, that that was a whole other <laughs> project I completely forgot to talk about, um, and just uh, through that and you know working with that VGM style music and like as we were saying in that conversation, we were kind of talking about covering it and how difficult it was and how to work with like I think the conversation we were having at Eight Static, that Eight Static Fest was about a little bit about this kind of stuff like talking about how like playing in a band with a backtrack etc etc because eventually we started using like nes backtrack and i used to drag the nes out with us uh Mm -hmm. you know and kind of how the two you know just working with that and how it developed in parallel again like i didn't play any beta test shows with anyone in the vgm scene right it's (laughs) funny yeah my my band went through a similar thing because uh my again my video game cover band from high school which also lasted you know a couple years uh after high school um you know, we fairly traditional like rock synth rock cover band lineup. So there, there was two keyboard players, a guitar player, bass, and drums. Um, and I had a lot of envy for the sort of video game sound, which is why I wanted like a synth heavy kind of sound. I, I wanted to cover video game music, but also wanted it to sound video gamey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was you know it was after meeting Dino and seeing what Dino was doing with uh, Chromalodeon. It was like, oh, I kind of want to get in on that. So towards the end of our shows, we started doing more arrangements where I was using Modplug and making backing tracks where I would double up with NES drums and there might be like a little melody, square wave melody that the guitar doubles up with. And I I wanted to mix it more and more into the sound. Um, Eventually, I did like another video game cover group called Autoscroll, Mm -hmm. uh, which is is like a spinoff of Cheap Dinosaurs. And for that, most of that album has... Uh, chiptune backing tracks, which is maybe kind of funny covering video game music, but it's I've always had this thing where it's like I want to cover video game music, but have it still sound like video game music. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would do something where like we cover an Amiga track, uh, but make a Game Boy cover of like the the bassline and percussion, and then and then you know we play live instruments on top. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of funny that we went through a similar thing. We're like doing these covers of video game music, but then also trying to figure out how to incorporate the chip music more and more. Again, completely in parallel because we had no idea who each other you know were at the time. So it's so stupid too because like I I remember friends sending me links to Eight Static and telling me about it and me like just blowing it off. Like like <laughs> I, I completely remember someone saying, "Oh, you should go to this thing. It's like video game music. You like that?" And be like. Pfft. <laughs> you know like oh who are they whatever you just kind of like in like the, the typical nerd like unaccepting way of like oh, oh, totally. you know forget it like what i'm doing is better <laughs> you know, like, or something like that it's so stupid and you know but it's 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 just funny how it's in parallel yeah. you know I, I guess that's kind of our origin story oh. i mean because like all that knowledge that we kind of had and the two diverse backgrounds that we have and the expertises we have kind of lead to 
where we are in these in our episodes here and just kind of how we take this analysis and how we pull things apart, I guess. Absolutely. And I remember, so also to explain a little bit what happened at the end of, you know, what how, what was happening for my end. Um, so again, I had that YouTube channel, Xplod 203, where I uploaded video game soundtracks, but then I stopped using it, you know, so it's kind of like a defunct channel that's just sort of sitting there. Mm-hmm. And then um, I did start posting on Tumblr a little bit, uh, a blog called retro game audio um i didn't really post very long there for either and then i got obsessed with dark souls and demon (laughs) souls and all i did for a very long time was just like play those games and like test those games and like dissect them and and i sort of stopped interacting with the chip music community you know it wasn't a falling out or anything but i just sort of i don't know i think maybe i sort of binged on it for a bunch of years that it was just easy for me to like walk away from it for a while um but of course i've always loved it and i i had these ideas sort of like starting to build up in my head like how do i get back into it um there's a lot of great people uploading um video game music to youtube now very thorough stuff like when i started doing it it's because there wasn't a lot of stuff up at the time yeah um it's just sort of like eh you know that's not really for me anymore just you know um I was just trying to figure out like, what could I do? I had that Tumblr and I was happy with some stuff I posted on there, but I was sort of like, I don't know. I don't know what to do or what to write about, what to talk about. And then I started listening to podcasts a lot more in during those years. And that's where this, the idea sort of started kicking around in the back of my head. Like, Oh, maybe I could do a podcast. Um, but of course I couldn't do it by myself. And I, so I never took the idea that seriously, but then just after talking to you at that show for like, probably a couple hours about video game music uh which we did not exhaust <laughs> you know like we talked for a while about video game music but by the end of the conversation i didn't feel like we were done yeah um you know <laughs> i was like and it just sort of realized like the idea just one day kicked in my head like maybe a couple months after that show happened i was like oh shit why don't i do the podcast and just ask steve if steve wants to do it because after that show i knew that you would be the perfect person to help me do this thing so uh and uh that turned out to be correct so yeah no i just remember like you asking me and it's like yeah i mean like this is you know the the idea that we can spread what we know or and that we can continue to find out new things is just is really what it's all about and i really felt bad because i i was you know i was trying to keep up with my blog and trying to find new things and a lot of what i did on my blog was kind of highlight weird soundtracks or find lesser known things or kind of do like a small uh for lack of a better term, biography on certain lesser known composers and stuff. So I've always been interested in what I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's when talking to you, there's a lot I don't know. Uh, So I think that that's kind of like what's been really fun about this experience and kind of leading up to it is that there's just an opportunity to learn more and more and more and to share what we learn, especially when we do these like crazy dives into like the most arcane things. Once we find this information out, it, the, the best part about this is saying to you guys, the audience, like, Hey, <laughs> look what we found. Isn't this awesome? Cause like, we're super excited about it. Like, absolutely. Like the last episode we just did, like I learned probably just talking to Andrew during like that episode and on the sidelines of that episode, I probably learned more in that like three hours that we recorded that than I have in the last like six or seven months about game music. Like it's unbelievable just like how things work and everything. And, you know, that's great. I just want to keep learning this stuff. And, uh, you know, this podcast is a perfect vehicle. And when you have someone to help you, like, a, you know, like a partnership in here, you know, that makes it a lot easier. So, you know, thanks for asking me, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. And thanks for joining me and sticking along in this uh, crazy journey. And we have 
again, tons of episode ideas piling up. Um, we had like a couple more episodes in mind before even doing this one, but we figured, uh, you know, now would be a good time to do it. So, yeah, you know, we have a lot of episodes planned and, you know, we thought this was the right time for this one. Um, especially since like, you know, we can talk endlessly about this stuff and it's good to talk about some of the stuff we know <laughs> as opposed to constantly searching for the things we don't know. So, uh, this is kind of a, a great exercise and it really reminded me a lot of how, uh, why we do this. Absolutely. So, uh, Steve, what else is going on? Well, just got uh, back earlier this month from vacation. I finally uh, I went out to visit my wife's family in Korea, but I also spent some time in Japan, uh, which is always fun. Uh, did some retro game hunting, and I'm proud to say I've acquired the Sharp X68K. Uh, I got an XVI model, uh, which, you know, in my glee to get this working uh, and, and getting it from Japan. I, it, OK, first of all, this had its own carry on suitcase that I carried on with me because I did not want to check it. Wow. I carried uh-huh. it and like wrapped it in bubble wrap and like gingerly carried it around like it was a child uh, throughout, you know, through different airports and various things until it finally got home. I promptly plugged it in and blew the fuse out of the X68K within uh, the first three seconds of turning it on. Man. Um, so there's a couple of different things I did wrong. I've spoken with Inverse Face, who's awesome and knows everything about everything. Of course, yeah. Um, and so he's going to hook me up. We're, I'm going to try to go down to Baltimore and we're going to chat a little bit and try, hopefully fix the power problem with this. And uh, once we get that going, you know, and, uh, you know, it's all powered by, uh, you know, Patreon money here, too. This is, you know, uh, one of the purchases that I've been trying to make with that. Um, I'm, you know, it's really exciting to see this in action. And once that's there, I really hope to start getting some of the MDX files played back here and do a bunch of hardware recording and post it onto, uh, onto uh, YouTube, which I think will be really cool, um, especially to, to have this as a resource. Um, it obviously sounds really great, and just to be able to listen to these things, just play. Uh, I, I'm just like, I, they're beyond words. I'm like actually sitting here. I, I redid my entire game room recently, and I, it's sitting right next to me here. And you know, it's not powered on, but it will be powered on. <laughs> it will <I>, soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope Brendan can uh, help you fix that. We'll have to get him on the podcast sometime because he's, yeah, he's he's brilliant. Uh, um, if you've heard of the Magfest convention, he's the uh, the guy who made it um (laughs) he uh, and he does he does uh chiptune stuff as well and he's got this awesome thing we should probably just bring him on to ask him about uh what he's making because it's this awesome thing where uh it's like a briefcase of all these different sound chips and it's like he can control like any of them at a time so it's basically like a portable synthesizer using the actual hardware of different sound chips um it's a total like frankenstein looking monstrosity at least the version i've seen of course it's like a work in progress uh yeah but the, it, the updates it, i've seen are, fan- are amazing it's gonna be a really cool thing yeah it, it's it's a brilliant creation um i mean he's also got that really cool he's trying to set up that uh like game uh computer or computer museum kind of uh where he's kind of like, oh yeah i forgot yeah. about that yeah, yeah 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 it's still in progress and that's why it's it's great because i can uh, i can physically bring my x68k down there he can take a look at it because there's one there 
Um, so yeah. we, we can do comparisons. And what's nice is we're going to put a, uh, we're going to work on putting a, I guess it's a micro or mini ATX power supply. So basically one that you'd use if you're building a mini ATX form uh, boarded uh, computer, like the, the little tiny uh, motherboard things, those little tiny power supplies. Apparently you can take the old power supply out here and then you can use a true American power supply with all of this. And then uh, you don't have to worry about it ever again, pretty much. Cool. Um, you know, it's one of those things. And, and Brendan said this, and I think this is very, you know, important. It, it, like, and this is a great way to think about things. It's not about preserving the original parts anymore. It's about making sure things work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. that really sticks with me because it's like you're right. Like it doesn't ma- like at a certain point you have to just make sure something actually turns on. Never mind that it's using what it was meant to use. You know, so uh, he said not to feel bad about it for that reason. But uh, you know, I'll go down there. I, I'm really excited to hang out with him, and you know, we're gonna I'm gonna bring my MSX too. We're gonna play some games and stuff. So it's gonna be pretty cool. Uh, oh, it's gonna awesome. show me how to do it too. So like uh, you know how to actually wire this and do some other uh, cap replacements I need to do. So it's it's gonna be a pretty fun weekend. Whatever we get that going so fantastic cool so let's uh jump into the comments on the most recent episode all right so here's a comment from xyz a good friend of the podcast i feel like big bird doesn't actually have any words but just a lot of letters possibly synthesized not even samples and the software strings together the sounds to make him speak that approach makes this vid make sense and he links a vid if you randomize the word smithing software instead of it making uh, instead of making it make sense Brad Smith would definitely be the guy to ask about these things, about this, though. Um, yeah, that's cool. I would like to learn more, again, because Big Bird is, like, the one game we felt like it's, like, the most iconic example of speech for the NES, <laughs> and we, as much as a deep dive as we did for the episode, um, we still didn't, like, glean, like, how, like how many full seconds of audio are actually dedicated to speech from that game. Um, so how that's all broken down exactly is something I would love to learn more about. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I never thought of it that way, and I think we did. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think we thought about that in our episode particularly. So it's it's definitely worth investigating. Mm-hmm. And so in that episode, I also made a comment about like you know why is it that uh, raw PCM has such a hard time playing in NSF files, mm-hmm. and like you know what's the difference if uh, if NSF is emulating the NES, like why are certain things off limits? Um, so XYZ also has a comment that helps uh, illuminate that. Uh, they say, my understanding is that a .NSF file is basically just a .NES ROM, but with everything except the music engine and the music data stripped out. Same for the players, which emulate a 2A03 CPU, and no other peripherals other than what's necessary for sound. The problem is that when either of the players or the format was proposed, they just left out the ability to use and read interrupts like uh. the IRQ. So one way to think of that is that the NSF strips away NES emulation things like video hardware, but savvy programmers would use a video scan line in their music engines. So the NSF would see, okay, now in the music engine, you know, sit here and wait for the IRQ, and then N- and the NSF goes, what's an IRQ? That makes perfect sense, yeah. Yeah, so, so you're sort of like outsourcing to like other tricks and uh, quirks of the NES hardware that you don't consider uh, like core audio features they're not things designed for audio inherently and so just the nsf format didn't include it so it's funny it's just like what we re- recently learned about the super nintendo too where uh the format only allows up to a certain size um and we had those games that had that high quality like singing in them mm-hmm. and those games don't work in the spc format 
uh, for similar reasons. It's breaking the rules. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's looking to things that the Super Nintendo can do that aren't normally related to the audio, and they swap in and out samples uh, from like other other places in the ROM or whatever. Um, so it doesn't work in the SPC format. So sometimes yeah. you have these audio formats related to these older systems, and they can't actually do everything that the original system could do in terms of audio, uh, just because you have these weird odds and ends uh, that understandably whoever designing the format uh, either missed or just knowingly uh, ignored just because it, it could have made their format like exponentially more complicated and inefficient, potentially. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it, it's like build for like 95% of the cases and 5% of the cases are, you know, why would you build for that? So yeah, yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Who is it that designed the NSF format again? Is that Kevtris or am I getting that mixed up with uh, someone else? Uh, uh, I don't know. Cause the wiki got recently deleted. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. That's right. Yeah. There's no more Wikipedia page on NSF. <laughs> uh, so that, that's a thing that happened. Um, but uh, either way, uh, you know, whoever whoever created the NSF format, I have no doubt, is a total genius. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's to be like, oh, why couldn't it play raw PCM? That's like, you know, it's kind of a silly thing. Yeah. So we have one last comment here. It's actually from Plug, the guys who do uh, chip sounds, which is a, an awesome, awesome VST that is pretty damn authentic uh, for many, 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 many uh, different chipsets. Uh, so kind of awesome to see Plug here and, you know, mm-hmm. I actually use their product uh, for some different things just because I work with people who don't use trackers. <laughs> so right. it's, it's an easy and effective way. I mean, I can make music in there that no one would know I didn't track. And that's kind of great when you're trading it back and forth with someone who's only capable of using a DAW. Um, mm-hmm. So it's made, my, it's made my life a lot easier. Uh, but <clears throat> they, they chime in here and write, um, NSFs are based on the idea of periodic 60-50 hertz. Uh, sound routine calls. So raw PCM needing busy waiting is just not possible with it, unless you use tricks where the NSF's in, uh, initiation function never returns. Um, I just want to quickly stress too, again, to back you up on how great uh, Plug's creations are. Uh, I remember back in the day, like really lamenting, like, oh, you know, don't use VSTs, uh, just just use the trackers or whatever. And if, mm-hmm. you, if you need the authentic audio, like find a way to export it out of there and mix it back in with whatever DAW you're using. Because um, I was very down on like what I'd heard, um, what the community sometimes um, condescendingly refers to as fake bit. Yeah. Um, just hearing stuff where it's like someone takes a MIDI file and maps it to a couple different sawtooth and square voices, and it's like, ta-da, there's the chiptune. And I, I, to me, that always stood out as um, just not a very great way of doing it, and you can hear like the, <laughs> in, the inauthenticity of it. Um, yeah. And I remember always lamenting, like, you know, if you're good, if, if there is going to be a VST, just why can't one have, like, basically the Famitracker instrument editor? So you get to do all the little bells and whistles, like, attack with a certain duty cycle, sustain on another. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Plogue chip sounds happened uh, and completely met that need and ha- handled a bunch of different consoles. Um, so if you're looking to make, like, chiptune music in a VST, uh, check out Plogue chip sounds because it is incredible. Yeah, no, it, it, like I said, it, it makes my life a lot easier. Uh, and it sounds correct. And that's really the, it's really the selling point. It sounds right. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, it, it's, it, like you said, it, it, you know, there's a reason why, like, sometimes you end up using Tracker because you really want it to sound authentic. And you can do a lot with it. So I highly recommend it. And it's great to see that they're listening to the podcast because, uh, yeah, that, that's just really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. 
All right, so I guess that's it for comments here. Again, uh, our comments and everything are on our uh, official, uh, I guess, where we post everything, which is Retro Game Audio at, on SoundCloud. So soundcloud.com slash Retro Game Audio, no spaces. Um, so feel free to leave uh, episode comments here, and we'll look through them, and we'll read a couple of them at the end of every episode. So uh, <clears throat> that would bring up our next little segment here, though, which is called Name That Game. So, Patrick, we had a track uh, for last time. Yes, uh, let's give it a quick listen again. And that was first identified correctly by Ali Yanger, Ali Yanger. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, that's Beneath the Steel Sky, the Amiga version. So, which is a pretty cool game. Uh, one that I did not grow up with, but I played it later in like Scum VM or one of those, uh, you know, emulators. And uh, it's a pretty great adventure game. Yeah, it's also not that egg that Europeans like, uh, which was another one of the guesses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, moving on, we have another selection here. See if you can name that game. Hey, Patrick, I guess we're kind of at the end of the episode here. Uh, and we were kind of talking about what we might want to have for a song of the month. And I was thinking maybe it should be something by Chromalodian. So uh, what do you think? What'd you pick? Okay, sure. Um, so again, this is the band that I had met. Um, you know, I, I booked them at a teen center show and had my band open for them. Uh, later on, though, I went on to play drums for them. This was Dino's band uh, before Cheap Dinosaurs. And um, so on there their final album there's it's a lot more game boy heavy mixed with live instruments um so this is a track that i play drums on very strong uh, game boy presence with it as well and uh just in a whole bunch of you know guitar synthesizers uh stuff mixed on top so without further ado here's polygon sun and thank you for listening to retro game audio (laughs) 